Hello and merhaba, you're listening to Medical Protection Podcast Real World Series. I'm your host, Jalen Simsek, and today I'll be joined once more by Dr. Stephen Priestley, who's a familiar voice and will be hosting the Headliner Series. Stephen, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, Jalen, thanks so much for um, inviting me along uh, today. Uh, I'm a senior medical educator with the Cognitive Institute and, uh, and an actively practicing emergency specialist and I teach clinical reasoning also um, for a university, Griffith University, here in Australia. So I've been really pleased to be part of this diagnostic error and diagnostic safety series that we're doing. Thank you. Stephen will be co-hosting alongside myself today. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Sylvia Mamamidi. Dr. Mamamidi, how would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, everyone. Um, hello, Stephen. Uh, thank you for having me here today. Uh, my name is Sylvia Mamedi. I'm a physician by training. I specialize in public health. I'm originally from Brazil and moved to the Netherlands uh, many years ago uh, uh, to work with uh, research in uh, clinical reasoning, medical education. I'm now an associate professor at the Institute of Medical Education Research, Rotterdam the Erasmus Medical Center at the Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us today. So, Sylvia, could you start by sharing your story about how you became a researcher in the clinical decision-making and diagnostic errors area? Well, mine is not a a common trajectory uh, in the field. My colleagues came from a a different path. It can be even an example of how... uh, chance encounters and decisions we made in face of the opportunities that come to us may lead us down a a path we we never anticipated. Uh, As I told you, I was uh, a physician, a a public health physician. I became the dean of the School of Public Health in my region. And then in Brazil, a very poor uh, region of the country. And I started to become more and more interested in how we could improve a physician's performance. I started to study experiential learning, how reflection upon our own experience could lead us to uh, to improve our practices. And at the time we contacted Hank Schmidt, who was uh, at the time a very big name uh, in the field of medical education and problem-based learning. Hank introduced me to uh, research on clinical reasoning. And I, I became more and more fascinated by the study of how how our brain works, how the agnostic reasoning was possibly the most extraordinary example of the the wonders and the pitfalls of our minds and move it to the field. So it was a career change many years ago, but I'm happy with it, I have to tell you. I still find it fascinating. That sounds like a really fascinating background as well. And it sounds like the opportunity with Hank was a turning point. So I'd just like to move on to the literature that we have. And the literature in this area tells us that a majority of diagnostic errors come from deficiencies in clinical reasoning relating to gathering and interpreting information. In in fact, the way that doctors think when they are forming a diagnosis. Can you give us an overview of the current thinkings about how doctors think? Uh, well, how the early research in clinical reasoning, already in the in the first studies in the seventies, 
what what it showed initially was uh, that doctors basically use what we call a hypothetical deductive uh, model. They they generate diagnostic hypotheses very usually very early in the clinical encounter, and then subsequently they test these hypotheses uh, by asking uh, more data from the patient by uh, collecting information from the physical examination or ordering test. And the, the hypothetical deductive model uh, is very consistent what, what became later on, subsequently, very influential in the medical literature. And uh, it's the idea that uh, we all reason, uh, reasoning, uh, reason, sorry, we all reason through what we call uh, two different uh, reasoning modes. Uh, it's called the dual process models of thinking. And I think a, a very famous is uh, Kahneman's book, uh, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, that popularized the dual process thinking. And the, uh, although there are different uh, dual process theories, the, the common idea, the basic idea is that thinking involving, involves two different processes, sometimes called type one and uh, type two. The faster system, type one, is uh, largely automatic, uh, occurs largely unconsciously, uh, apparently uh, without much effort. And the slower system, type two, is more controlled, more conscious, effortful. And uh, sometimes this is called intuitive reasoning and uh, reflective or analytical reasoning. And and they, they this this model seems to tap very well to map very well uh, the, the 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 hypothetical deductive model, uh, whereas type one process or system one process is involved in the generation of hypotheses. We physicians move to to the type two process to confirm the diagnosis or refute the diagnosis or the verification of uh, of the diagnosis. Uh, of course, this is a, is the, let's say, a, a simple way, a schematic way of defining how physicians reason. We know that both uh, system one and system two, both types of process are usually involved in any in any diagnostic process. And um, just for our listeners, uh, because there is a lot of information in there, how would they? How would type one and type two? Um, be acted out in a clinical setting. If uh, uh, Stephen can also can also talk about this this well, if uh, if you see a patient and then in the first uh, uh, minutes of the encounter, cues in the patient history tend to activate from the physician's uh, memory, from the physician's long-term memory, uh, uh, what we call a, an illness script a script of a disease. And these scripts can have different formats. They, they can be uh, even an example of a, of a patient seen before, but they can be also prototypes of a, of a, a particular disease. And the activation is usually triggered by some salient cues in the history of the patient or uh, the teeth complaint or even the, the appearance of the patient. And then after this hypothesis comes to mind, they, they, the physician tries to get more information from the patient to basically match the, the, the case at hand, the, the patient at hand, 
with the values that are uh, are present in the UNESCO script that the physician activated from memory. This is why uh, why we say that the more scripts a physician has in memory and the more organized, the more refined, the richer are these scripts, the better is the chance that the physician recognizes the patient in front of them as the disease that he has seen before or that he, he has in memory. So I'm happy to um, comment on that because uh, as an emergency specialist, I spend, I, I do believe I spend a lot of time in type one thinking and in pattern recognition, having been in emergency medicine for 35 years. I, I like to think I have built up a number of illness scripts over the years. And in fact, when a, a junior doctor might come and talk to me about a patient, I, I won't always get a, a recognition of what the likely diagnosis is, but I'll often then go and see the patient in the cubicle and the contextual part, the age of the patient, the appearance of the patient, the pattern of symptoms and any examination findings, just by doing that will often lead me down a particular diagnosis. The challenge, of course, in doing that, as Sylvia would know, is, is that you are prone to making errors um, at that time, and cognitive biases is one of those errors. The challenge is sometimes to know when to flip to a more reasoned analytical approach. When do you know that, gee, you're going a bit fast here, you're thinking you're recognising all these patterns from your experience, but what is it about this patient that doesn't quite align to your preformed patterns? And when do you have to actually do a bit more type two work, which actually takes a lot more cognitive effort? That that I think is sometimes the challenge. Yeah, we, we, you might realise that it, this is indeed not a, a, a particular characteristic of physicians. It doesn't happen only to doctors. To doctors, it happens to to all of us in our daily lives. Uh, uh, we make decisions, thousands of decisions every day, possibly, basic, uh, basically by associating, uh, automatically associating what we see with the information that we have in mind. If if I look at this this chair. I am not analyzing the chair to see uh, the characteristics of the chair to decide that this is a chair. I basically automatically associate the what I'm seeing with uh, with an example of uh, a prototype of that objective that I have in mind. And this usually works very well, but it's also, as, as Stephen said, it's very subject to error. If, uh, if, for instance, a feature of a patient becomes very salient, and tends to attract my attention because, for instance, uh, it's a it's a clinical finding that's usually very much associated with a disease that seems reasonable at first glance, but indeed is irrelevant in the in the case of hands. And I stick to this first diagnosis and do not uh, stay like what we call anchored to it, and do not go and verify more carefully the the subsequent information that I can get from the patient. Or uh, if a diagnosis is, comes very easily to our mind, what we call availability bias, a diagnosis comes very easy to, 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 to the mind of the physician. Because, for instance, he has seen many patients 
uh, with that disease before. He's on shift uh, on, a, on an emergency department and sees very patient, many patients with a heart attack, for instance, myocardial infarction. And then comes a patient that looks like it's the myocardial infarction. The diagnosis of myocardial infarction will naturally come more easily to, to the mind of the physician. But then he, he miss a, may miss a patient that has other condition that looks like myocardial infarction, but it's not. This is why I, we try to say, and you might realize that they put in all the blame in a type one process all the time is something that it doesn't fit with this model because that even if type one would, uh, if a, a wrong diagnosis would have been made by type one processes, if type two process would work well, it would repair the initial the initial diagnosis. So usually the two systems are involved, or mistakes can can emerge from the two types of reasoning process. And I, I do see that in my own work as well, where when I advise doctors or clinicians, uh, what tends to happen is they, uh, the patient comes in uh, with symptoms, for example, of breathlessness after a traumatic incident. Um, they, they have various, various symptoms similar to anxiety. And then that's what they diagnose the patient with, which then turn out to be heart failure. That's a very dramatic example. But it's the initial um, diagnosis of uh, of making a hypothesis because this patient had a traumatic incident. So immediately it could be anxiety, it could be depression, instead of maybe potentially exploring that a bit further. Um, you, I do want to find out, is there a way to tackle this or reduce these errors um, that can be made as a result of uh, human synthesis or faulty in synthesis. Yeah, there there has been uh, recently a lot of discussion about uh, about what could be seen as the the side effect of the prominence that the the dual processes theories have taken in the in the medical literature, and this side effect that it starts to uh, to to be pointed to in the in the literature is that we we are so much concerned with uh, how we can improve reasoning processes we are so much concerned in with understanding the what are the sources of cognitive biases what are the causes of diagnostic errors that we have dedicated not so much attention to uh, to uh, to so, to the search for uh, effective strategies to deal with that and there has been a much effort in trying to develop uh, uh, sometimes educational strategies and uh, workplace strategies. I, I like this this distinction because I think also because I think the the underlying mechanisms that would uh, would uh, act uh, in each case is different. Uh, but if we think about educational strategies, we are talking about. Uh, things that we could do, interventions that we could do to help students or trainees or, or physicians to, to become able to solve the new cases, new problems in the future, even when they don't have this, these instructions, let's say, they don't have these devices, they don't have 
the the assistance on how to do the the uh, the diagnostic task, how to to diagnose the patients, and the workplace interventions are more the interventions that you could give while the physicians are you that the physicians could have while solving the case. For instance, uh, digital the uh, uh, diagnostic support systems are now uh, are now available in many in many workplaces and the physicians could use could get help from the digital uh, support system while solving the case or uh, checklists checklists have been uh, uh, checklists uh, are, we were talking before about the the disappointing results of uh, what we could in terms of what we could do but checklists have a, a, some look promising in terms of uh, how they could help if checklists are focused on the on the content of the problem uh, uh, for instance there are many uh, studies by uh, Matthew Siebold especially is is the person who uh, has studied more this type of checklists that help for instance in the physical examination of uh, patients with uh, uh, cardiology uh, related symptoms or uh, that helps uh, interpretation of uh, ECGs. These are things that are easily available, uh, would be easily available to the physician at the moment of uh, of the diagnosis. And some of them have some uh, some promising, uh, there, there are some promising findings from, from studies uh, checking the effectiveness of this, these interventions. The other type of interventions is is a little bit more, uh, uh, how could we say, uh, 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 doubtful. Uh, uh, there have been many attempts to uh, to train physicians to the bias uh, in educational interventions uh, with uh, courses or uh, workshops that try to teach physicians or students what are cognitive biases, what types of biases uh, may occur, uh, what are the sources of uh, uh, diagnostic errors, and uh, uh, try to teach them uh, what they, how they could identify when they are under circumstances that could lead to mistakes. And But the problem with, uh, with these interventions until now, and this doesn't mean that better interventions uh, couldn't be uh, couldn't be conceived but what we have until now is that when these interventions the effectiveness of these interventions was evaluated what uh, uh, what comes very clearly from them is that physicians or students become more able to identify bias they they in knowledge tests about what are the types of bias that exist they are more able to answer these questions but whenever they were asked to solve clinical cases, to diagnose cases, then there is no difference in terms of diagnostic accuracy. And much more promising in, in, in our view are interventions focused on uh, basically refining the illness scripts that physicians have in mind. So educational interventions that focus on uh, 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 making physicians more knowledgeable about what are the features, the clinical features associated with, with each disease, what are critical diagnostic features that help discriminate between diseases that look alike. And if when you, you do uh, the results of, uh, of this type of interventions, when you uh, 
Yeah, they were studied in experimental studies yet, not in, in real settings. But when they were evaluated, this type of interventions helped preventing uh, uh, errors due to cognitive bias. We had a study we, we call, I don't know if you saw it, uh, we call uh, immunizing physicians against availability bias in reasoning. And that's basically an intervention, an educational intervention that one week before the, the, the test uh, put physicians through uh, problem solving uh, uh, and uh, feedback to enhance the knowledge of features that discriminate between diseases. And this intervention was successful in making the, the physicians less vulnerable to availability bias when they solved cases, diagnostic cases, the, the clinical cases, one week after the intervention. So I really think that as in any other expert, expert field, professional expertise field, uh, knowledge is really is really a key, and it's not knowledge in general, but how the UNESCO script is organized, how how rich is the UNESCO script that the physicians have in mind. Sylvia, um, the increasing knowledge required to be more accurate with diagnosis is certainly it's part of an educational intervention. What I'm hearing though is right at the bedside with the patient. We also need rapid access to that knowledge or organized knowledge that we can extract at various times. We've obviously found that challenging over the years because our diagnostic error rate is running broadly at around 10%, despite what I'd like to think is an explosion of knowledge in our medical schools and in our healthcare facilities. What's the promise of digital solutions or artificial intelligence at the patient's bedside in order to be able to assist us in accessing large amounts of relevant information with the patient in front of us? I, I think it's great. It's great. If, uh, if you see uh, uh, digital support systems nowadays, even without starting to use uh, chat GPT or open AI as, uh, as we are all doing, even without even uh, digital support systems that are based on a, on a database of uh, of knowledge constructed by experts themselves before the the explosion of machine learning and deep learning even these digital support systems can be helpful and and there are studies evaluating um, uh, what is the reduction in error when uh, when you place physicians uh, solving the uh, cases, clinical cases with and without a digital support system. The, the uh, recent one that I saw with was with Isabel. You probably know Isabel Stephen is a, is a larger digital support system uh, that's widely used also here in, in the Netherlands and in many countries. And uh, the use of Isabel reduced the diagnostic errors in around 8% in this specific study, for instance. That's good because it's not the perception of the physicians that they do better or it, it's a controlled, uh, controlled experiment that can then really attribute the decrease in errors to the, the interventions, to the use of Isabel. And if you think that this, this could 
could have a substantial uh, impact on a, on the diagnostic accuracy. Even if it, if you think that ninety mm. percent of the diagnoses are correct, if you would increase, you would reduce the the rate of errors in eight percent. It could be a we. It could be a, a, a substantial gain, and it would be. I have been the last week uh, trying with Chat uh, GPT, for instance, and the the response of this type of thing is is really uh, is really good. So it, it would be something available to everyone, and you could certainly uh, uh, help checking uh, what are the findings that are, for instance, uh, uh, is this finding that's so atypical in this patient that I am suspecting of a, 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 a brain tumor or pulmonary embolism, but this patient doesn't have a, a finding that I would expect here. But does this preclude this diagnosis or is this a present in an atypical? Of course, with all your experience, you you have a range of uh, representations of atypical variations of the diseases in your memory and you can rely on it. But less experienced physicians or less knowledgeable physicians, for instance, uh, uh, that don't have this very rich illness script that contains all the possible variations of a, a certain disease would benefit from a digital support system to to check and say, oh, hey, this no, this is still possible that this patient has pulmonary embolism, even if he doesn't have a, this thing that I expected that he would uh, he would have. So I think this is really great. Yeah, I um just for our listeners, Isabel is a. Um, it is a form of digital decision support. It's really a differential diagnosis generator where you can put in the the gender and the age of the patient and what area of the world they're in and then a number of their different symptoms or signs and it generates a large number of diagnoses, not all that need to be tested for for that particular patient, but it's a useful checklist, as Sylvie was saying, to run through to say, have I missed something? Um, should I be thinking about this? So I must say... I've been telling our medical students and our juniors to to use that. It's interesting that more senior doctors are, are far less inclined to use something like that software in order to augment their clinical reasoning, possibly because of experience, but possibly, I guess, because of unfamiliarity with those sorts of systems. Um, I've always said that um, you're more likely to see atypical presentations of common diseases than typical presentations of rare diseases. So having a range of different illness scripts, if you like, for those common diseases that often present it's, uh, atypically uh, we, is so We important. are trying just, Thank you for that. just a point about that, digital support systems. We have tested in, in many different ex, uh, experimental studies a, a procedure that we call deliberate reflection. And that's basically a an approach that asks physicians to uh, to go back to the case after the initial diagnosis and uh, the, uh, try to look for information that denies the diagnosis, to look the information that confirms the diagnosis, and to consider alternative diagnosis and, and, and go through this, this process of contrasting and comparing alternative diagnosis for the cases. 
in all the meta-analysis, the systematic reviews and meta-analysis that we saw, the, the, the deliberate reflection comes out as the most consistently successful approach to uh, to repair mistakes and, and to improve diagnostic accuracy. But it would be uh, very rarely very unlikely to be feasible to use this type of procedure as it is structured in the real clinical setting. And what we are trying to uh, to study now is how we could uh, we could reformat a, a digital support system such as Isabel to 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 like uh, replicate the basis of a deliberate the deliberate reflection procedure to work as if it would be as if the physician would go through all the steps of the deliberate reflection procedure. Because uh, uh, with the, the deliberate reflection procedure, the improvement in diagnostic accuracy uh, goes up to around the 40, 50% in all the studies, depending on the complexity of the case, depending on the circumstances that the physicians were subject to bias or not. But so the, the digital support systems, if the nature of the digital support system uh, is, is aligned with this type of procedure that contrasts and compares different alternative diagnoses, maybe the, the efficiency of the dis, digital support system can be made even higher. Instead of improving the eight, correcting eight, 10%, they could correct diagnostic errors as this type of procedure such as deliberate reflection does experimentally. And this would be a great thing in, uh, in real life, in real settings. I think there was a lot of information in there that our listeners can take away. And it sounds like there is a lot of research being done in this. But just going along the tech route, um, with my members, the clinicians that I tend to advise, when there has been a claim made uh, with a contributing factor of a diagnostic error, we tend to share with them educational resources. This can be in the form of uh, fact sheets, webinars, or face-to-face -face workshops. And I can see that you've also done some area in this, Sylvia. Um, Using a malpractice claims database to drive aspects of clinical reasoning in training general practice. Um, can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, well, I I, I started my uh, career in research on medical education by uh, by trying to study how reflection upon one's own experience uh, would lead to learning. Um, there is a, a famous educator that in my view, is one of the greatest uh, in, in, in the world ever, John Dewey from the US. And he, he has a say that he used it to say, we don't learn from experience. We learn from reflection upon experience. So I, I would tend to say that reflecting upon what has happened in, in a case that, that led to malpractice claims would would have a great potential not only for the physicians directly involved with uh, with the mistake, but also for for their peers. It's a real case. Uh, we we try to conduct research by using a uh, by using uh, vignettes that are prepared by our colleagues, uh, uh, internists or emergency physicians or general practitioners, based on the real life. But it's different from. Uh, from a, a real, real patient uh, with a 
all the, the troubles, all the stumbles that happened that led to a malpractice claim. We did a study trying to uh, identify what were the most uh, relevant uh, malpractice claims that could be used for medical education here in the Netherlands. And, and this was trying to see, okay, wh where is it that our general practitioners are making mistakes? Where, where is it that what's going on, going on wrongly? Uh, uh, what are the most uh, frequent situations? What are the most frequent circumstances? This by itself would be good because then we can focus on this, this diseases in the training of the physicians. And I think there is uh, much more to explore uh, in this, in this topic. I really think that uh, uh, using malpractice claims, preparing them for education, for instance, by making them um, anonymous, uh, by trying to uh, to to report correctly all the the process that has led to uh, to mistakes, and uh, uh, making physicians reflecting upon that has a great potential. Even if uh, even if uh, the interventions that try to put physicians to 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 teach physicians how to reason the reasoning process even if the results are not so uh, so promising at this point at least teaching physicians uh, what can go wrong uh, uh, showing them that our cognition can be flawed uh, the the in the uh, worst scenario it would make us more humble and more uh, uh, motivated to learn and more motivated to uh, to improve. So I would say that this is this is a there is a promising approach there, and we should pursue it. I, I think that's a very good note to leave that final episode. And if there's one thing to take away for our listeners, it's reflection. That's deliberate reflection. So thank you so much for joining us, Sylvia. Thank you. Thank you all for having me here, and also Stephen for co-hosting with me. Thank you very much. And with that, we've reached the end of today's podcast. If you would like a certificate for listening to go towards your CPD or to learn more about what we covered today and who you were listening to, please do take a look in the podcast description. This is the last podcast for our Real World series, but tune in next week for when we hear more from Dr. Stephen Priestley and guests with his headliner series. I've been your host, Jaden Simsek. <laughs>